In 2018, a Toronto man named Danny Philippides was skiing in New York. He had taken the ski trip with friends and colleagues. While hitting the slope one day, Danny suddenly went missing. Six days later, he showed up in Sacramento, California, 3,000 miles away, still wearing his ski jacket, boots, and carrying a ski helmet. All he could remember was skiing, then coming to in California. What happened in those six days during his disappearance is still a mystery. Some speculate that he had suffered a brain injury and was in a fugue state. Some say he had a concussion. Some may use a more unconventional extraterrestrial explanation. Still, we do know this. Danny was in New York, then went missing and reappeared six days later, thousands of miles away, with no memory of what happened. Mr. Philippides' story is fascinating, no doubt. It's complicated, though, by the fact that this is not the only story of its kind. The series Missing 411 chronicles many stories just like his, where someone is in a national park, goes missing, and sometimes reappears without explanation of where they've been. It's a pattern that, though rare, seems to keep popping up every few years. I've read some of these accounts, and I'll be honest, they seem a little unbelievable to me. I would love to say confidently that there is evidence of extraterrestrial or even otherworldly encounters. I have been told stories by people that seem quite real and unconventional, and I believe they really believe something far-fetched happened. But it's kind of hard to believe, right? In this episode, I want to share a rabbit trail I never explored, but one that kept coming up in my research. And I'll admit, it seems a little far-fetched. But one of the critiques of this podcast has been that it has been a little far-fetched. Hard to believe that the story I'm telling is true. Touché. Perhaps then there is value in hearing the far-fetched stories out there. You may not believe it. You may not like it. But that doesn't make the story go away. Every story carries with it some level of truth, something of value for us to glean, and the mysterious disappearance in this episode is no exception. This is Crashed in Roswell, Survivors in a Misunderstood City. Before we get to the episode, I want to thank our sponsors, the International UFO Museum and Research Center here in Roswell, New Mexico. The UFO Center is a mainstay in our community that has had millions of visitors walk through its doors to experience the Roswell story firsthand. The museum offers exhibits including the 1947 Roswell incident, but also stories of ancient aliens, UFO close encounters, alien abductions, and many, many photo ops from over the years and from around the world. The museum also boasts the second largest UFO and alien related library in the entire world, second only to the Vatican, believe it or not. They have tens of thousands of books, magazines, periodicals, audiovisual materials, and much, much more for the ufologists looking for answers to what is going on in the skies that we can't explain. If you're visiting Roswell or you're even remotely interested in Roswell, you've got to plan a trip to the UFO Center. They're open seven days a week, so there's no excuse to miss out. You can plan your visit at roswellufomuseum.com. That's roswellufomuseum.com. And now the episode. My name is Tanya Kraft, and I've lived in Roswell since I was a very, very small child. Tanya Kraft is the wife of Rick Kraft, the attorney you heard in the last episode of Season 1. 
After the first season released, Tanya left us a comment on Facebook regarding an unbelievable story about a missing person, and it wasn't the first time I ran across this story. After season one's release, I had a series of unrelated comments and statements from Roswell locals about a story they heard about the UFO crash. Their stories were all the same. Shortly after the crash, and after the materials at the site were confiscated and taken to the base, a nurse working at the base went missing. Some believe she was relocated after seeing firsthand the debris, or the bodies, from the crash. Uh, can you tell me um, what you heard or what the rumor was about a missing person uh, during the UFO incident? <laughs> yes, I can. Um, after the UFO museum opened, um, Glenn Dennis and Max Littell and Walter Hotz would go down there and, and visit with people who were going into the museum. I knew Glenn as Roswell's sheriff. So growing up here, you know, he was a guy you were afraid was going to pull you over. <laughs> but everybody knew Glenn Dennis, and he had a really good reputation. So uh, I just kind of ran into him at the UFO Museum, and I had some friends with me, and we just kind of started chatting. And so he kind of told me a little bit about his story, and his story just knocked my socks off. So he basically shared with us that he had worked as a mortician at Ballard's Funeral Home, and he also had an, a contract to provide ambulance services. So he had two different jobs or two different hats back then. And he said that he received a call from the Roswell Air Center base from the Air Force mortician who worked out there at the base, and he was asking if Ballard's had any infant-sized coffins. He said they didn't. And so right around somewhere in this timeline, he had a call with the ambulance service that he ran and had to make a run out to the Roswell Air Center. And he ended up in a hangar where the bodies had been taken from the crash. And he ended up visiting with a nurse that he knew. He knew her very well. And so the nurse basically told him, she pulled him aside and told him about the crash. And she told him about recovering corpses. And she also told him that she had been a part of the team that did an autopsy on one of those bodies. And she also mentioned that there was something really, really awful that happened because it was a smell that made all of them very, very sick. And then about that time, he was escorted and asked to leave um, the property and get off the base. So Dennis wanted to know more. And he asked her, you know, I mean, he asked for her and he couldn't find her. And um, he talked to everybody he could find, you know, at the base and was told that she had been transferred out. And then later on, he was told that she had died. And so that made Dennis very, very fearful. And he told me that he was so afraid that if he said anything, something might happen to him. And so if something happened to his nurse friend, he was afraid something might happen to him. So he didn't say anything about that crash to anybody for a very long time. Are you inclined to believe Dennis's story? I am. And you know why? Because this is, this is Roswell, and this is a small town. And I grew up here, and you know people, and you trust them. The story of the missing nurse kept coming up in various interviews, fan comments, and articles I read for the podcast. It seemed a little far-fetched to me that a nurse would somehow vanish without a trace, without anyone demanding for her to be found, and disappear so conveniently around the UFO incident. I had no doubt the story had its origins somewhere, but I felt almost certainly it was not as true as some wanted it to be. So I asked UFO expert Dennis Balthaser if he knew anything about the story. Have you heard the story of a missing nurse um, at the base? A nurse goes missing. Is there any substance to that at all? I believe a nurse existed. Uh, while I was at the UFO Museum from 96 to 98, I was with Glenn every day for two and a half years. He was one of the founders of the museum. 
I have some problems with his story. Uh, I do believe there was a nurse. I do know that he was a mortician at the time. He supposedly got a call that somebody in town was injured, a military guy was injured in a motorcycle accident. He picked him up in a funeral home ambulance, took him out to the base, and when he got out there, he said two army ambulances were parked at the rear entrance of the hospital with the back doors open and what he described as gray-looking metal inside the ambulances. He went inside and they immediately jumped him, the military jumped him, and asked him what he was doing there. And they told him he could not come in the hospital. They escorted him back to the funeral home. He saw a nurse that he apparently knew who said, get out of here before you get in trouble. So they took him back to the funeral home. The next day he got a phone call from the nurse uh, said meet her, meet her at the officers club, she wanted to talk to him. He went to the officers club, met the nurse. She said she was involved with the examination of bodies, was an assistant to pathologist. And she drew pictures of what this being looked like. The next day, Glenn called out there to talk to the nurse and was told the nurse is no longer here. Well, he got some information, he got an address, he wrote to her. His letter came back unopened on the envelope in red letters that said deceased. They said she was killed in a plane crash in Europe. They had shipped her out of here. There's no record of a plane crash in Europe. And I just have a problem with Glenn's story because for the years that I was with him, his story never changed, but I never did really buy into it. Hmm. What was it that made it fishy to you? Well, they, him and Stanton Friedman looked for that, that drawing at the funeral. He had said it was in the safe. It wasn't there. So we don't know if the drawing was lost, if he... He had Alzheimer's the last few years. Did he forget where it was? Was it lost or was it stolen? We don't know. So there's a lot of questions about the drawing to begin with. The copy of the drawing we have, he had done by, by an artist based on his memory. Hmm. So it's not a first-hand drawing. Right. I'd like to believe, Glenn, but right now I just can't put it all together to say that I fully believe him. I do think there was a nurse. What happened to her, I don't know. Glenn Dennis. This is a name that pops up frequently when you search for the Roswell UFO story, so let me introduce him to you briefly. Glenn was a mortician in Roswell at Ballard Funeral Home in the 1940s. Ballard is still around today, one of the old names in Roswell. He became connected with the UFO incident in the late 1980s when he told researchers he had an eyewitness to bodies at the base after the crash. His story went on. A nurse at the base walked in on the autopsies of the bodies and was wrangled in to help. She had contacted Glenn to help with embalming, which is how he claims he was involved, and in some accounts, she was never seen again. At least, this is the story of local legend. The story from the source seems to suggest she never really went missing, 
Instead, her identity was never revealed because Glenn said he would keep her name a secret. Her story, however, he shared regularly. No name, interesting source, UFO eyewitness. I wouldn't know anything about that. The problem for me with his story is the irregularities in the telling of it. I've heard some version of it for years, and every time it fell in the ranks of folklore, like La Llorona or El Chupacabra, meant to scare kids around campfires and issue cautionary tales. The other problem I have with the story, where does it fit? In light of what John was telling me, and in light of the rest of the UFO lore, I wasn't sure how this story was consistent with the rest of the bigger story. I was curious enough about it to ask John one day during my interviews with him. This was later on, after he revealed the boxes in his home to me and he gave me that medal. So I kept I kept running across this story, uh, been meaning to ask you, um, I ran across this story a lot when I was doing research for the podcast about someone uh, who, who disappeared, a witness yeah. to a nurse that disappeared at the base. Oh, yeah. Did yeah. you ever hear that story? Oh, yeah. Yeah, but I never thought much of it. Seems pretty bogus to me. Why? Why is that? Oh, uh, Kyle, it's a small town. I, <laughs> I think we would have known who went missing if they actually did go missing, don't you think? Yeah, that's <laughs> <Same> true. <laughs> <laughs> but, you, I mean, you guys received the threat, right? So, I mean, did you ever think that could that could happen to you like they'd make you you guys go missing or you know. no 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 that that never crossed my mind not I, I think mother mostly was worried about having her life taken away from her you know being being sent off maybe stationed somewhere else or losing other kids because she had to work but no dying right no 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 they they had that kind of power but I wasn't afraid of that U.S. government killing us or anything. I tend to side with John. The notion that the U.S. government would kill off someone, figuratively or literally, without the entire town noticing her disappearance, seems odd to me. I heard rumors about an eyewitness to bodies, but none could be substantiated. What's to say some people aren't misremembering what they heard about an eyewitness, or when they heard about it? After all, it took 40-plus years before an eyewitness to bodies was ever claimed to exist. All in all, it seemed pretty far-fetched to me, which leads me back to John's story, and an element that certainly seemed far-fetched. That metal. This episode is also brought to you by Hangar 209. Hangar 209 is the place to get your signature Roswell gear. It's a stone's throw away from the UFO Museum. You can't miss it. They have everything from apparel to local food for sale, stuff you won't find anywhere else. Plus, you're going to love their many varieties of alien abduction beef jerky, including jalapeno lime, habanero, and of course, it's New Mexico, so green chili jerky. I honestly love their stuff, and every few weeks I have to go there to restock on my supply of specialty olive oil from the Santa Fe Olive Oil Company. Do yourself a favor, trust me, pick up some of the Chipotle olive oil from them and then use that on your tacos next time you're making them, you will not be sorry. <laughs> Visit Hangar 209 while in Roswell or order your authentic Roswell gear online at Hangar209.com. That's Hangar209.com. In the fall of 2019, John gave me a medal he claims had a connection with the crash. 
It was nestled in with his mother's things, and when he shared this fact with a friend, a military leader at the base confronted John and his family with a threat. If they shared anything about what they saw, they would be sorry. This medal appeared to me to be silver. The odd writings on the back of it seemed to be etched with an engraver's pen, and the nature of John getting the medal seemed odd to me, as it did to many of you. I was asked by many listeners why John so readily gave me that medal, and why I didn't follow up more about it. The answer is, I did follow up with him in the moment. But knowing that the medal story was about to get complicated, I didn't want to add it to the end of season one. At that point, talking about the medal would only make things even more complicated and not give you a satisfactory conclusion to the issue. But now that we're here, let's get into it. <laughs> Kyle, thanks for, <coughs> thanks for dropping by. Thank, yeah, thank you, John. And uh, it's been a good afternoon. And yeah. hey, listen, I'm I'm really I'm, I'm grateful you gave me this uh, this little memento, this medal. Um, but I, I just part of part of me feels guilty for for taking it because it's got all this history to you. You know what I mean? <laughs> no, 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 no. So I don't, like, like I told you, Kyle, I've I've seen a lot of things <coughs> that I just as soon forget, and that is one of them. All right. Okay. Well, listen. I, I thank you. Why? Why do you think this little thing caused the reaction and did? Like, why? What, what was that guy so upset about you finding this little whatever it is? I don't know. I don't know. I, I'm not even sure. I want to know. Is it? Is it possible that it's just like nothing? That they were just like spooked or? You know, because of everything going on, or do you really think that this is something that they were missing? And what do you think? What do you think beach this me, thing is? Beach me, out. No, listen, I've I've heard stories about what they found out there, what, what what that thing was made of, and I know that doesn't sound like this. So I I don't know what it is, or where it came from, but I but I do know it spooked them enough to threaten me. And my mother. So I'm, <coughs> I'm guessing it's something. But what it is, <coughs> you ought to figure that out yourself. It's yours now. When I left that conversation, my opinion of the medal was that it was likely nothing. The government was overly concerned about every little detail, and they were anxiously trying to cover up something. Therefore, my opinion was that when word got out that John had a piece of metal, leaders made the connection to John's mom, who was at the base. She had access to seeing things firsthand. If John actually had a piece of something from the crash, the military would want to recover it as quickly as possible. When they could not find it, they threatened John and his family. The medal is what famed director Alfred Hitchcock would call a MacGuffin, an important detail or object that moves things along but is ultimately unimportant or insignificant. The medal was a MacGuffin. There was just one problem with that logic. I still didn't know exactly what it was. And because it did not stick out to me early on, in the writing of season one's narration, it became an afterthought until the end. Sorry, folks. I never claimed to be a journalist. But here we are. During the COVID shutdowns and during the release of season one for public consumption, I revisited that medal and had it sent off to be tested by a refinery. The only way to know for sure what it was was to have it examined with state-of-the-art equipment. If it really was just a silver medal, I would write it off as nothing, scrap from a broken medallion or pin. But if it was something else, we'd really be in the thick of a controversy, wouldn't we? 
I got a call one morning at work with the results. A staff member put the refinery on hold and got me. I fumbled with my phone and tried to record what I could. Unfortunately, I only got one side of the conversation, but it will speak for itself. Hello, this is Kyle. Yeah, hey, hey, how's it going? It's going pretty good. What you got for me? Well, we uh, got your metal, and sorry it took so long. Okay. Uh, but nothing out of the ordinary here. Just uh, really? like a 925. Okay. That's good to know. Good to know. Nothing else? Nothing else here. Okay. Hey, look, I appreciate you getting into that for me, so. Sure thing. Have a good day. Certainly. Yeah, you too. Bye. It came back definitive. The refinery gave me only three numbers, nine, two, five, sterling silver. You can make of the metal whatever you will. For me, that was all I needed to hear. It was nothing, a piece of scrap John found that led to a brouhaha with the military. I suppose thinking it was extraterrestrial was a little far-fetched, but it was fun to imagine, wasn't it? And that's just the problem with stories these days. It is certainly fun to imagine the conspiracies, the mystery, the secret dealings going on behind closed doors about our world's unexplained events. When we catch wind of a story, something remarkable or unusual, it is like we get to peek through the cracked doors of those clandestine meetings amongst our world's most powerful leaders. Of course, there have been conspiracies in our history proven to be true like the government using psychedelic drugs to control behavior in their MKUltra experiments. But we ought to be careful how we sensationalize a story, especially in a world where every story in the news is sensationalized. The problem lies in what psychologists call the desirability bias. This bias occurs when we filter out information or leads that take away from our desired outcome. For example, your favorite political candidate may be running on a platform of honesty and patriotism. However, a story breaks that reveals the candidate told a massive lie and did so at the expense of the country. The evidence points to the fact that this candidate is not honest and is not patriotic. Yet, because you favor this candidate, you will likely filter out or justify the actions of the candidate so that you feel good voting for them. Desirability bias. In conspiracies, we often want the far-fetched idea to be true, but in the course of investigation, we find holes in the plot that lead us away from what we want the outcome to be. We can ignore those issues and keep on our merry way, eventually leading us to spreading crazy ideas with little basis on or any solid information. Your bias. I'm sure Except you can what think you of a dozen may not be happening and come to terms with a new story. John's medal was a bust. It is not extraterrestrial, it is not space stuff, and it is not an unknown substance. It was a piece of silver he found, and where it came from is anybody's guess. Is it unusual? No, it is not. That isn't to discredit the rest of John's wild story. There was still the matter of the file John's mother supposedly kept, a file he claims to have had details regarding what she saw at the base behind closed doors. Yes, it seems as far-fetched as the metal, which is precisely why I wanted to know what was in it. And John's niece had a lead to a safety deposit box that might just contain what we all wanted to know. There was just one problem. Denise was nowhere to be found.
I'm sorry, but the person you called has a voice mailbox that has not been set up yet. Goodbye. On the next episode of Crashed in Roswell, I make every attempt to get a hold of Denise and discover what was in the safety deposit box. And we take a look at the U.S. Pentagon, who released information about UFOs, information we've been searching for for decades. That's next time on Crashed in Roswell. If you like this podcast, you can support us by going to CrashedInRoswell.com, checking out our store with all original Crashed in Roswell gear. I'm talking t-shirts, mugs, you name it, and more. Every time you buy something from that store, you are helping support this podcast and the great people who put it together. Also, please be sure you hit like and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts, and please leave us a review. My thanks to Ryan Bishop on production and to Brian Hunley, who wrote our theme song.